0: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer in chief, Michael Ian Black. It is, as always, a heartening joy to have you with me. As we plod our way through Tom Hardy's 1895 Victorian condemnation of marriage, Jude the Obscure. And what a condemnation it was last episode. Now, I should note for the record that I invited my shitty little rat dog, Jack Jack, into the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library for this recording. He declined... As I was making my way through my Connecticut manse, I called to him Jack, Jack. Uh, He looked at me in that curious dog way with head a tilt, eyes wide, I indicated that I would be heading to the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. He trotted in the other direction. I followed thinking perhaps he had misunderstood my intentions. I said to him, Jack Jack, we're going to do an episode of the podcast. He curled on his little doggy bed and uh, rolled over so that his stomach was facing me. In other words, he was saying, you may pick me up, but I don't want to go. So I record today alone. And it is a special day here in the wilds of Connecticut because it is my son's high school graduation today. And uh, I would like to say that I'm teary at the prospect. I am not. I am clear eyed. I may grow a little teary as the hour approaches, but for now, I am primarily uh, relieved that he has made it through and full of love for him, excited for him as he embarks on the next step of his life, which uh, in the immediate future is sitting on his ass all summer playing video games. So I'm excited for him to do that because that will make me very proud. We have his high school graduation uh, later this afternoon. A little bit of family has come in for the occasion my, on my wife's side. And uh, they have all trundled off to the Museum of Natural History in New York City this morning. And so I am, as I indicated, alone. And perhaps it's a good thing because there could be some racy scenarios developing here in Jude the Obscure. Arabella has just secured a file file. P-H-I-A-L, of some love potion number nine, some pre-Viagra Viagra, something in liquid form that she has placed into her capacious bosom. She secured it from Dr. Vilbert, the quack of Wessex County. And we do not know what her plans for this file are, but we know they are not good because she is incapable of goodness and if i sneeze which it seems increasingly likely that i will <coughs> it's because allergy season has not abated here in the wilds of connecticut connecticut, connecticut. 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 <sighs> So she's just caught up with her husband there at the agricultural fair where last we met them and where Arabella and her dumb publican husband have been spying on Jude and Sue. And uh, Arabella is in a quarrelsome mood because she has seen how happy Jude and Sue are. And she recognizes that she and her own husband do not have that self same happiness. So uh, the last sentence was, and they left the tent together, this pot bellied man and florid woman in the antipathetic recriminatory mood of the average husband and wife of Christendom. Now, Thomas Hardy, I believe was married. One can only imagine how his wife felt about Jude the Obscure, because it is just one lashing after another towards the institution. In the meantime, the more exceptional couple and the boy still lingered in the pavilion of flowers. Right, Arabella and her big oaf of a husband were hanging out in a simulated bar below. And this exceptional couple and the boy are hanging out in an enchanted palace, a pavilion of flowers. The High, an enchanted palace, to their appreciative taste, Sue's usually pale cheeks reflected the pink of the tinted roses at which she gazed. For the gay sights, the air the music and the excitement of a day's outing with Jude had quickened her blood and made her eyes sparkle with vivacity. She adored roses, and what Arabella had witnessed was Sue detaining Jude almost against his will while she learnt the names of this variety and that and put her face within an inch of their blossoms to smell them. I should like to push my face quite in to them the deers, she had said. But I suppose it is against the rules to touch them, isn't it, Jude? Yes, you baby, said he. Yes, you baby. Just like at a strip club. You can look, but you can't touch, you baby, said he. Uh, He didn't talk about the the strip club. He just said yes. Uh, And then playfully gave her a little push so that her nose went among the petals. Oh, you scamp the policeman will be down on us and I shall say it was my husband's fault. Then she looked up at him and smiled in a way that told so much to Arabella. Happy, he murmured. She nodded. Why? Because you have great, you have come to the great Wessex agricultural show or because we have come, Jude, you needy little so-and-so. And then Arabella basically says it. You are always trying to make me confess to all sorts of absurdities because I am improving my mind, of course, by seeing all these steam plows and threshing machines and chaff cutters and cows and pigs and sheep. Jude was quite content with a baffle from his ever evasive companion. But when he had forgotten that he had put the question and because he no longer wished for an answer, she went on. I feel that we have returned to Greek joyousness and have blinded ourselves to sickness and sorrow and have forgotten what 25 centuries have taught the race since their time, as one of your Christminster luminaries says. There is one immediate shadow, however, only one and she looked at the aged child whom though they had taken him to everything likely to attract a young intelligence they had utterly failed to interest he knew what they were saying and thinking I'm very, very sorry, father and mother, he said. But please don't mind. I can't help it. I should like the flowers very, very much. If I didn't keep on thinking, they'd be all withered in a few days. (laughs) (laughs) So they call him Little Father Time. I mean, he is. He's also a little bit like the Grim Reaper, right? He's like Wednesday Adams from the Adams Family. He's this solemn little goth child. This bleak little ashen-faced imp who does not laugh, does not smile, speaks very little. And when he does, it is of uh, the temporal things. It is of death. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a shadow hanging over everything. You have this little shitty kid uh, saying, I would love the flowers if I didn't know they were going to die. Now, I am not quite sure what the purpose of this child is in their lives. Yet, it will all become apparent because Tom Hardy is a master. But at the moment, we don't know what his coming uh, foretells other than disaster. But... At least right now, they have overcome 25 centuries and have returned to Greek joyfulness. They have been looking at roses and smelling their blooms and feeling as if they are in a palace of happiness. That is the end of chapter five. We go on to chapter six. The unnoticed lives that the pair had hitherto led began from the day of the suspended wedding onwards to be observed and discussed by other persons than Arabella. The society of Spring Street and the neighborhood generally did not understand and probably could not have been made to understand Sue and Jude's private minds, emotions, positions, and fears. The curious facts of a child coming to them unexpectedly, who called Jude, uh, who called Jude father and Sue mother, and a hitch in a marriage ceremony intended for quietness to be performed at a registrar's office, together with rumors of the undefended cases in the law courts, bore only one translation to plain minds. Little time, for though he was formally turned into Jude, the apt nickname stuck to him, would come home from school in the evening and repeat inquiries and remarks that had been made to him by the other boys, and cause Sue and Jude, when he heard them, a great deal of pain and sadness. The result was that shortly after the attempt at the registrars, the pair went off to London, it was believed, for several days, hiring somebody to look to the boy. When they came back, they let it be understood indirectly and with total indifference and weariness of mean that they were legally married at last." Sue, who had previously been called Mrs. Bridehead, now openly adopted the name of Mrs. Folly. Her dull, cowed, and listless manner for days seemed to substantiate all this. Well, after all that, we have dispensed with their marriage in a couple of sentences. They Went on a train. They went to London. They filled out some papers. They came back, and they were at long last, Mister and Missus Folly. And what seemed to prompt this change in their lives were the wagging tongues of strangers, people on on Spring Street, spreading malicious gossip. Children at the school bullying father time, young time, and uh, uh, telling him all sorts of terrible things about his parents, which much aggrieved them. Although I can't imagine it bothered the kid very much because nothing bothers that kid. So if he came home and said, hey, mom, everybody's saying you're a whore. uh, Yes, that would upset her. But I don't imagine it it would upset him very much. Because after all, we're all just going to wither and die. Even the hooers among us. So I don't know. I don't. I'm not exactly clear why this rumor mongering should affect them so. They had been resolved to live their lives the way they had. They had been happy and content with only a single shadow looming over them. But now, they have changed their minds. And Sue apparently has grown dull cowed and listless as a result. So she has done the one thing she has promised herself she would never do. And she did it for the sake of a ghoul, this little son who is not her own. But the mistake as it was called, of their going away so secretly to do the business, kept up much of the mystery of their lives, and they found that they made not such advances with their neighbors as they had expected to do thereby. A living mystery was not much less interesting than a dead scandal. Good line, Tom. Good, hey, bro, hey, Shakespeare, good line. The thing about the living mystery... Shakespeare and the dead scandal—that's a good line, bro. The baker's lad and the grocer's boy, who at first who at first had used to lift their hat, hats gallantly to Sue when they came to execute their ar- errands, in these days no longer took the trouble to render her that homage, and the neighboring artisans' wives looked straight along the pavement when they encountered her. Nobody molested them, it is true, but an oppressive atmosphere began to encircle their souls, particularly after their excursion to the show, as if that visit had brought some evil influence to bear on them, and their temperaments were precisely of a kind to suffer from this atmosphere, and to be indisposed to lighten it by vigorous and open statements." Their apparent attempt at reparation had come too late to be effective. You know, an interesting uh, point just of inquiry from my brain, perhaps to yours, is if you recall... Phillipson, when he had his own scandal back there at Shaston, you remember Sue had left him and had created uh, quite a living mystery of his own, had been called into the, uh, the school board meeting, basically. And they had said, we, we can't have you teaching here because of your licentious lifestyle in so much as you let your wife leave you. You know, without repercussions. And it was the Hoity Toity of the town, the stuffy parents, the helicopter parents, who said, Yes, yes, tut tut, we can't have this man teaching our precious, precious children. But if you recall, it was the low caste people of the town, the, the carnies, the uh the ride operators and such, who came to his defense and said, you know, leave the poor guy alone. He didn't do anything. He's just he's just living his life. He's a good man. Why don't you let him teach? And then a fist fight broke out, and feathers flew, and cats went into the air, and a great cloud of smoke went up, and all you saw were fists and feet and uh, strangled necks. Well, why uh, here in, in Aldbrickham... Where Jude and Sue are living in modest quarters, creating headstones for the poor. I guess I would think the logical consistency of Hardy's thinking would be that the poor people, the salt of the earth, as it were, would not judge them too harshly for whatever indiscretions they think may have transpired between them. Uh, so it's somewhat surprising to me that all the errand boys and the lower class blue collar people with whom they are associating would turn their noses up at Jude and Sue because Hardy has spent a great deal of time glamorizing and romanticizing those very people you remember at the bar e- eons ago in christminster when jude had been walking among the academics and 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 trying to sniff the scented air of their farts he walked into a bar and there he discovered life true life the drunken carousing merry-making life and thought to himself ah these this is life these are the real people well he's among the real people right now so why are they being such dicks to them <sighs> all right it's break time back in a minute on obscure yes it is obscure and i am still here reading alone in the library. Or, as we say in English library, no Jack-Jack here, whatever, let's go on. The headstone and epitaph orders fell off, and two or three months later, when autumn came, Jude perceived that he would have to return to journey work again, a course all the more unfortunate just now, in that he had not as yet cleared off the debt he had unavoidably incurred in the payment of the law costs of the previous year. He owes money for the divorce. One evening, he sat down to share the common meal with Sue and the child as usual. I'm thinking, he said to her, that I'll hold on here no longer. The life suits us, certainly, but if we could get away to a place where we are unknown, we should be lighter hearted and have a better chance. And so I am afraid we must break it up here, however awkward for you, poor dear. Sue was always much affected at a picture of herself as an object of pity, and she was saddened. Well, I am not sorry, said she presently. I am much depressed by the way they look at me here, and you have been keeping on this house and furniture entirely for me and the boy. You don't want it yourself, and the experience is unnecessary. I have to sneeze again. You have been keeping on this house and furniture entirely for me and the boy. You don't want it yourself, and the expense is unnecessary. But whatever we do, wherever we go, you won't take him away from me, Jude, dear. I could not let him go now. The cloud upon his young mind makes him so pathetic to me. I do hope to lift it some day, and he loves me so. You won't take him away from me. Certainly I won't, dear little girl. We'll get nice lodgings wherever we go. I shall be moving about, probably, getting a job here and a job there. I shall do something, too, of course, till, till. well, now I can't be useful in the lettering. It behooves me to turn my hand to something else. Don't hurry about getting employment, he said regretfully. I don't want you to do that. I wish you wouldn't, Sue. The boy and yourself are enough for you to attend to. There was a knock at the door, and Jude answered it. Sue could hear the conversation. Is Mr. Fawley at home? Biles and Willis, the building contractor, sent me to know if you'll undertake the relettering of the Ten Commandments in a little church they've been restoring lately in the country near here. Well, that's convenient. I mean, you're looking for a job. Somebody knocks on the door. Hey, here's a job, buddy. Now, it seems a little too convenient, Shakespeare. little too convenient for my tastes jude reflected and said he could undertake it it's not a very artistic job continued the messenger the clergyman is a very old-fashioned chap and he has refused to let anything more be done to the church than cleaning and repairing excellent old man said sue to herself who was sentimentally opposed to the horrors of over restoration yes well she would be She of the classical mind and Hardy, the architect, probably have similar opinions about such things. The Ten Commandments are fixed to the east end, the messenger went on, and they want doing up with the rest of the wall there since he won't have them carted off as old materials belonging to the contractor in the usual way of the trade a bargain as to terms was struck, and Jude came indoors. There, you see, he said cheerfully, one more job yet, at any rate, and you can help in it. At least you can try. We shall have all the church to ourselves as the rest of the work is finished. Next day, Jude went out to the church, which was only two miles off. He found that what the contractor's clerk had said was true. The tables of the Jewish law towered sternly over the utensils of Christian grace as the chief ornament of the chancel end in the fine, dry style of the last century. And as their framework was constructed of ornamental plaster, They could not be taken down for repair. A portion crumbled by damp required renewal, and when this had been done and the hole cleansed, he began to renew the lettering. On the second morning, Sue came to see what assistance she could render, and also because they liked to be together. Well, see, that's just a pretty thought. She's coming by, she's like, hey, what can I do? And you know. I don't know that I can do much, but you know what, kid? i like to be with you. And he says, kid, i like to be with you too. Let's just hang out in contented silence. The silence and emptiness of the building gave her confidence and standing on a safe, low platform erected by Jude, which she was nevertheless timid at mounting, she began painting in the letters of the first table while he set about mending a portion of the second. She was quite pleased at her powers. She had acquired them in the days she painted illumined texts for the church-fitting shop at Christminster. Nobody seemed likely to disturb them, and the pleasant twitter of birds and rustle of October leafage came in through an open window and mingled with their talk. They were not, however, to be left thus snug and peaceful For long, okay. So, here come trouble. Here come trouble. About half past twelve, there came footsteps on the gravel. Without, the old vicar and his churchwarden entered, and coming up to see what was being done, seemed surprised to discover that a young woman was assisting. They passed on into an aisle, at which time the door again opened and another figure entered, a small one, that of little time, who was crying. Sue had told him where he might find her between school hours if he wished. She came down from her perch and said, What's the matter, my dear? I couldn't stay to eat my dinner in school because they said... He described how some boys had taunted him about his nominal mother, and Sue, grieved, expressed her indignation to Jude aloft. The child went into the churchyard, and Sue returned to her work. Meanwhile, the door had opened again, and there shuffled in with a business-like air the white-aproned woman who cleaned the church. Sue recognized her as one who had friends in Spring Street, whom she visited. The church cleaner looked at Sue, gaped, "'and lifted her hands. "'She had evidently recognized Jude's companion "'as the latter had recognized her. "'Next came two ladies, "'and after talking to the charwoman, "'they also moved forward. "'And as Sue stood reaching upward, "'watched her hand tracing the letters, "'and critically regarded her person in relief "'against the white wall, "'till she grew so nervous "'that she trembled visibly. I mean, they're freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. Do you see? Do you see the fallen woman lettering in the church and the Ten Commandments of all things? Why I never that wanton slut up there on the scaffolding thinking she is better than all of us when we know who she is. How dare she, how dare she spoil our church thus! The indignation and outrage is palpable and Sue feels the laser beams of their eyes boring into her as she letters the commandments one after the other honor thy mother and father don't covet your husband's wife for your neighbors whatever don't fuck animals all the commandments one laid out after the other and she feels it burning into her skin they went back to where the others were standing, talking in undertones, and one said, Sue could not hear which, she's his wife, I suppose. Some say yes, some say no, was the reply from the charwoman. Not, then she ought to be, or somebody's, that's very clear. They've only been married a very few weeks, whether or no a strange pair to be painting the two tables i wonder biles and willis could think of such a thing as hiring those yes indeed ladies how dare this couple this wanton couple ascend the scaffolding and start repairing the word of god did you see don't you see you ignoramuses They are literally repairing the word of God. They are restoring to the church, the dignity of a bygone age in their own actions. They are doing, they are undoing what time has done. They are going back to an earlier era. Now, not as far back as Sue would like, of course, but they are restoring in simple terms. That which had served others well before, the simple commandments, those of God to Moses. And yet, these women below the scaffolding, looking up, see only their own elevation above. The church warden supposed that Biles and Willis knew of nothing wrong, and then the other, who'd been talking to the old woman, explained what she meant by calling them strange people. The probable drift of the subdued conversation which followed was made plain by the church warden breaking into an anecdote in a voice that everybody in the church could hear, though obviously suggested by the present situation. So here comes some first-rate passive aggressiveness. Well now, it is a curious thing, but my grandfather told me a strange tale of a most immoral case that happened at the painting of the commandments in a church out by Gaymead, which is quite within a walk of this one. In them days, commandments was mostly done in gilt letters on a black ground, and that's how they were out where I say, before the Old church was rebuilded. It old, but it's spelled O-W-L-D, old church was rebuilt. It must have been somewhere about a hundred years ago that them commandments wanted doing up, just as ours do here, and they had to get men from Aldbrickham to do them. Now, they wished to get the job done finished by a particular Sunday, so the men had to work late Saturday night against their will, for overtime was not paid then as tis now. There was no true religion in the country at that date, neither among parsons, clerks, nor people, and to keep the men up to their work, the vicar had to let them have plenty of drink during the afternoon. As the evening drawed on, they sent for some more themselves, rum by all account. It got later and later, and they got more and more fuddled, till at last they went a putting their rum bottle and rummers upon the communion table, and drawed up a trestle or two, and sat round comfortable, and poured out again right hearty bumpers. No sooner had they tossed off their glasses than, so the story goes, they fell down senseless one and all. How long they bowed, so they didn't know, but when they came to themselves, there was a terrible thunderstorm raging, and they seemed to see in the gloom a dark figure with very thin legs and a curious boot a standing on the ladder and finishing their work. When it got daylight, they could see that the work was really finished, and they couldn't at all mind finishing it themselves. They went home, And the next thing they heard was that a great scandal had been caused in the church that Sunday morning. For when the people came and service began, all saw that the Ten Commandments was painted with the knots left out. Decent people wouldn't attend service there for a long time, and the bishop had to be sent for to reconsecrate the church. That's the tradition, as I used to hear it as a child. You must take it for what it is worth. But this case today has reminded me aught, as I say. Well, of course, you just take this anecdote for what it's worth. But back then, there was a scandal. And in that scandal, the drunken workers did not paint the knots. And so everything which had been forbidden was now bidden. And the scandal which it caused eviscerated the church so much that it had to be reconsecrated by the bishop. And this is all directed up at Sue and Jude, who are doing their level best to attend this simple task of re-lettering the commandments and how it must burn. I hope Jude packed his tums because he must be having the worst acid reflux imaginable right now. He's just trying to put a penny together and he has lived a more, a more moral life than all those little birdies below. We know this. He has lived according to the strictures of his own conscience, which I suspect jibe very nicely with those of Jesus Christ himself. And yet, like Jesus, he cannot escape the opprobrium of those who think they know better. Sue has struggled her entire life to find morality, to find ethics has struggled with philosophy, has struggled with her own nature, has struggled with psychology, though the term was not in wide use at that time. And yet here they are, the victims of a smear campaign. And with that, let's take a little break. Hi, we're back. I'm going to read a little bit more The visitors gave one more glance as if to see whether Jude and Sue had left the knots out likewise, and then severally left the church, even the old woman at last. Sue and Jude, who had not stopped working, sent back the child to school and remained without speaking till looking at her narrowly, he found she had been crying silently. ''Never mind, comrade,'' he said. ''I know what it is. I can't bear that they and everybody should think people wicked because they may have chosen to live their own way. It is really these opinions that make the best-intentioned people reckless and actually become immoral.'' Never be cast down. It was only a funny story. ''Ah, but we suggested it. I'm afraid I have done you mischief, Jude, instead of helping you by coming.'' to have suggested such a story was certainly not very exhilarating in a serious view of their position however in a few minutes sue seemed to see that their position this morning had a ludicrous side and wiping her eyes she laughed It is droll, after all, she said, that we two, of all people with our queer history, should happen to be here painting the Ten Commandments, you a reprobate, and I in my condition, oh dear. And with her hand over her eyes, she laughed again, silently and intermittently, till she was quite weak. That's better, said Jude gaily. Now we are right again, aren't we, little girl? Oh, but it is serious all the same, she sighed, as she took up the brush and righted herself. But do you see they don't think we are married? They won't believe it. It is extraordinary. Well, I don't care whether they think so or not, said Jude. I shan't take any more trouble with them. They sat down to lunch, which they had brought with them, not to hinder time, and having eaten it, were about to set to work anew. When a man entered the church, and Jude recognized in him the contractor Willis, he beckoned to Jude and spoke to him apart. Well, he's about to get the fillets in treatment, isn't he? He's about to get run out on a, run out on a rail, I suppose. "'Here, I've just had a complaint about this,' he said, with rather breathless awkwardness. "'I don't wish to go into the matter, as of course I didn't know what was going on, "'but I'm afraid I must ask you and her to leave off and let somebody else finish this. "'It is best to avoid all unpleasantness. "'I'll pay you for the week all the same.' "'Jude was too independent to make any fuss, and the contractor paid him and left.' jude picked up his tools and sue cleaned her brush then their eyes met how could we be so simple as to suppose we might do this said she dropping to her tragic note of course we ought not i ought not to have come i had no idea that anybody was going to intrude into such a lonely place and see us jude returned well, it can't be helped here. And of course, I wouldn't wish to injure Willis's trade connection by staying. They sat down passively for a few minutes, proceeded out of the church and overtaking the boy pursued their thoughtful way to Aldbrickham. And so it goes for Jude and... Sue. No matter what they do, no matter what direction they take, barricades are thrown up to prevent their progress. So it seems they will be leaving Aldbrookham with Wednesday Adams in tow. Where they will go, we do not know. Will it all be for show? Tune in to another episode of Obscure to find out. And until we reach that time and place in which all of these vexing questions will be answered, I say to all of you, adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And you can talk to us at Obscure with Michael Ian Black at gmail.com. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, why? Did you make it all the way to the credits? Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black.